0: Hi, my name is Vanita Jones, and I am part of the teaching team. It's my great honor to be here with all of you today as we continue to look through the chapters of Revelation. You know, this week we looked at Revelation 15 and 16. And if you recall, last time I was here, we talked about the trumpet judgments. Please, please don't draw any conclusions about who I am, because I'm here today talking about the bowls of wrath. You know, I... I just drew these randomly. It just happened to fall in the days I was teaching. So I do think it gives us a glimpse of our Heavenly Father's sense of humor, though, because, you know, I could be described best as an eternal optimist. You know, I'm way past that glass is half full. In fact, my favorite saying is, I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup is overflowing. That's who I really am. You know, I'm pretty sure if I'd have been on the Titanic on that tragic day back in 1912, I would have been that one person that they're talking about that is rearranging the chairs on the deck, trying to make everybody comfortable and hopeful about their futures. So I hear him today. And Chris, what, I have good news. We didn't just look at chapter 16. We had the opportunity to look at chapter 15 as well. Now, although chapter 15 is the shortest book in uh, shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, I think we can all agree that right in the middle of chapter 15, there are a few verses that are like a breath of fresh air. You know, it gives you a much needed rest before you enter into chapter 16 where the bowls of wrath are looming. And those seven bowls of wrath recorded in 16 are, thank goodness, going to be the last plagues that are going to happen before the second coming of Christ, which occurs in chapter 19. Now, you're going to go through chapter 17 and 18 before that, and it is going to be an interlude, but it will be anything but restful. You're going to look at the greater details of the fate of Babylon, but hang in there because chapter 19 is coming. And that's where our our hero is going to ride in on a white horse and save the day. Now, I may have shared with you before, I am that one person who almost always reads the last chapter of a book before I start reading the book. And usually when I say that, there are these collective gasps in the room. But I do. And I probably do it because I'm a little impatient. If you ask my husband, he would say, no, honey, you're very impatient. And and he may be right on this. But I do it because this I'm drinking from my saucer girl occasionally just need to be reassured that everything's going to be okay. It's all going to be all right. You know, it's the same reason some of you people watch Hallmark movies. You know, I have a dear friend, her name is Joanne, and she is a pediatric oncologist, hematologist. I would say she's one of the smartest people I know. And she deals with hard stuff every single day of her life. But she is not ashamed to say that she is a Hallmark movie junkie. In her own words, she'll say this, I see more than enough reality every single day. Sometimes I just need a happily ever after fix. You know, I don't know about you, But I have occasionally, when I've been reading through Revelation, wanted to skip over, and I have, over to chapter 19, and just reminded myself of what is coming. See, we're at that point in the Great Tribulation where it would be more than appropriate, if you were alive then, to strap on one of those sandwich boards, you know, that goes on front and back, and write the words, Repent the end is near, judgment is coming, and then run up and down the streets and start screaming at people. Now, it would be very dangerous at that time, but it would be more than appropriate for that to happen. If you haven't already, I want you to open your Bibles up to chapter 15, and let's get started unpacking these verses together this morning. I'm going to start by reading just the first verse verse to get us started. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now John records that he sees another sign in heaven, which alludes to the fact that he has seen other signs previously. And we know that. There, we see these back in chapter 12. We studied them. One of them was found in chapter uh, 12, verse one. And it's a woman who appears in the heavens and she represents the nation of Israel. The other one we see is in uh, chapter 12, verse 3, and it's a sign of the great red dragon. And that represents the final world power that's controlled by Satan. Now, here in chapter 15, John records another of those signs he sees in heaven, and it's seven angels with seven plagues. Now, this sign represents divine judgment upon the satanic system and all the political powers under the rule of the beast. Very quickly though, I want to just tell you a few things in this verse. I think there's a a lot of information given in this one verse about what's about to happen in these bowls. First of all, the words great and amazing are not seen in the New Testament together like this, except in this chapter. They're seen apart all over the scriptures. I think it's amazing that it's in this chapter. The number seven is seen throughout scriptures. And when we see it in scripture, it refers to completeness. I think it's a perfect picture here of completeness of God's judgment. And then the Greek word used for the word finished, which it means to bring to an ultimate goal or to uh, fulfill a divine purpose, which, by the way, happens to be the same word that Jesus used and that's recorded in John 19 when he's hanging on the cross. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was saying that his death on the cross fulfilled a divine purpose and that he had come to earth, what he had come to earth to do, he had accomplished. Now, what that tells me is knowing that God didn't leave his work of redemption half completed, that should leave absolutely no doubt in our minds that he's going to leave his work of judgment half completed. And that, to me, is a very sobering thought. A couple other things we learned in just a small little verse is that these bowls are gonna come with a sudden impact. They call them plagues. The original word used in the original, the text, the word used in the original text for the word plague literally translated means a blow or to be wounded. That leads us to believe that these plagues that are concentrated near the end of the seven year tribulation period aren't gonna be some kind of long drawn out epidemics, but rather they're gonna be very swift. They're gonna be destructive and fierce. And the last piece of information, which I think is the most beautiful in all of this, is that these plagues will be the final expression of God's wrath on all of mankind. And then all of these plagues are going to climax at the battle of Armageddon and the triumphant return of Jesus. Now, I mentioned earlier there are a few verses plopped down right in the middle of this uh, chapter and they kind of bring you a breath of fresh air, and those are up on deck right now. So let's read the next three verses in chapter 15. righteous acts have been revealed. You know, we've studied so much over the last few weeks, and at least I know I have, about wrath. We've learned a lot about God's wrath. But I think in this, these chapters, we're not going to just see God's wrath. We get to see God's mercy and grace. And we see John records a scene right in the middle here where the martyred saints are playing harps and they're singing songs of praise beside the sea of glass. See, those would be the very same people they talk about conquered the beast, the martyred saints. Those are the ones who came to know Christ during the Great Tribulation, and they had endured living in terrible circumstances. They would have endured hardships that were political pressures, religious pressures, economic pressures. And these believers are gonna, they they face life and death decisions, not just day in and day out, but every minute of every day. And in the world's eyes, they would have been called losers. They would have been called fools. They were imprisoned. They were hated. And most of them are going to lose. They lost their life just because they put their name, their, their trust in the name of Jesus. But upon entering glory, they are crowned as victors. They're victors. You know, I read something written by Ray Steadman that I love, and I want to share it with you. He says this, The Antichrist imprisons, tortures, and murders the followers of Christ under the illusion that he is demonstrating his absolute power and ridding himself of his enemies. In reality, all he is doing is running a little shuttle service up to heaven. The Antichrist expects the world to worship him, yet he's nothing but an elevator boy in God's service. And he's taking saints by the carload up to glory. Now, this is, of course, not the only time in Scripture we see that God uses whatever he pleases to accomplish his plans. But we can see here in the end of the Old Testament, he's using the Antichrist to uber his saints up to this amazing celebration that is taking place by the Sea of Glass. And it says they're singing what appears to be two different songs. Now, some think that this may be just as one song but most believe it's actually two different songs because the word song is preceded it's it's repeated each time with a definite article in front of it so it's the, the song of Moses and the song of the lamb and most also believe that the song of Moses refers back to a song that's recorded in Exodus 15 that was sung by Moses and the Israelites as they were as they were had been delivered out of the hands of Pharaoh and uh, across the Red Sea I put a few of those on your verse sheet. Um, a few of those verses from Exodus 15. It says, "Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand; the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength of your by your to your holy abode." See, when the Israelites sung this song, the Song of Moses, they were looking back to their deliverance out of Egypt. And they would have been looking back and reminded of that plague that started it all. The one where they were told to take the blood of a lamb and wipe it onto the doorposts, And that when the angel of death passed over Egypt, they would be saved. And in Revelation 15, the martyred saints are singing the Song of the Lamb. See, they too are looking back at the blood of the lamb, but this time they're looking back at the blood of the lamb that was shed on the cross by the perfect lamb named Jesus. And they're praising God for delivering them out of the persecution brought on by the antichrist and into glory with him. Now, both the song of Moses and the song of the lamb praise God for who he is and what he's done for them. And on a side note, which I think is awesome, I read, apparently, the Song of Moses is the first song ever reported in Scripture. And guess what? The Song of the Lamb is the last song ever recorded in Scripture. Now, one unnamed commentary said this about these two songs. And although we have no idea who said it, I think they sum it up perfectly. It says the Song of Moses was sung by the Red Sea. The Song of the Lamb was sung by the Crystal Sea. The Song of Moses was sung of tri- is a song of triumph over Egypt. The Song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The Song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The Song of the Lamb tells how God brought his people in. And the Song of Moses was the first song in Scripture, and the Song of the Lamb is the last perfectly sum- summarize these two songs. But did you notice in this song recorded in chap- verse three and four, the words you and your are rep- repeated over and over and over. It's all focused on God. It's focused on who he is and what he's done for them. And there's not one word about their own achievements, nor does it mention the terrible things that they've gone through it doesn't mention those at all. That's what proper worship does. See, it focuses our attention on God and who he is and not on the situation around us. I want to continue reading the remainder of chapter 15, and I'm going to pick up in verse 5. After this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." Here at the end of chapter 15, the stage is being set for the final judgment upon mankind. And what John sees come out, uh, come out on this stage are these seven angels, and they exit the tent of witness. Some of your, uh, your versions of a scripture may actually say the tabernacle of testimony. It's the same thing. But these seven angels exit the tent of witness, and they're given a shallow bowl filled with God's wrath. Now, the King James version of scripture actually calls it a vial. But that gives us a much different thought of what it truly would have been because, see, the, the word recorded in their original language for the word bowl refers to a bowl that's more shallow, that's, that's a saucer-like bowl. Think like pasta bowl instead of some tall, deep bowl. And because they say of the shallowness of this type of bowl, it's believed that these bowls of wrath are poured out in this rapid succession. Kind of like when you tip a bowl like that, it, everything pours out. It just cascade out. One after another, they're being poured out. I imagine it to be like cascading waterfalls of wrath. And these bowls that are being poured out begin to answer that age-old question. You know, the one we've asked it ourselves, how long are the wicked going to succeed? How long are they going to go unpunished? And how long are the righteous going to be living through and suffering through so much injustice? You know, just like it was, has been throughout history and throughout the tribulation, God's wrath is being tempered. And it's giving, he, he tempers his wrath at, up to this point to, to give everyone a chance to turn to him and repent. Look at First Timothy 2, 3 and 4 in your verse sheet says, this is good and pleasing in sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of of the truth. See, our Heavenly Father desires nothing more than everyone to be saved. But he's also told us this, there is a day of judgment coming. You know, in the latter part of verse 8, John records these words. And it's where he says, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. You know, this is kind of tucked in right at the end of this chapter, and it, it's kind of easy to jump over it and run right into the bowls of wrath. But it made me wonder, why is no one allowed to enter the sanctuary, the tent, the tent of witness? You know, this is heaven's counterpart of the earthly temple, and the earthly temple is where people would go, and they'd repent of their sins, and then they'd turn, and, the, and then they would have their relationship restored with their, their heavenly Father, You know, one uh, commentary suggested it's quite possible that that symbolizes that the temple being sealed like that, that this is, the time is at hand. The time is at hand. The repentance is is no longer going to be possible, that they will no longer have access to that and into the temple to restore their relationship with God. It's a disturbing and very sobering thought But we have to know that there is a time appointed in the future when it will be too late to repent and turn to God. Please don't confuse judgment postponed for judgment revoked. God in his mercy promises that he's going to deal with all the evil we had to deal with and it's going to happen. He's appointed that day. Now chapter 15 is a mixture of joyful worship. I think we saw a little of that, but it also has some solemnness. As we look into the impending judgments, I think it's no accident, though, that that God, who is a God of great order, placed a few verses about the saints worshiping right before this very solemn event. See, I think it's the exact same reason why worship is so important in our lives as well. See, when we worship God, and I'm not just talking about Sundays when you're at church singing praises, and, and that's fabulous, you should do that but I'm talking when we worship every single day by the way you live your life, through your thoughts, your words, your actions. It takes our focus, shifts it shifts it off of the world and all the things going on around us, and it fixes it on our heavenly father. See, I have no doubt that these saints we see singing by the sea of glass, this isn't the first time they've worshiped God. I guarantee you as they went through the tribulation, they made worship a big part of every part of their day. I think they would have to, there's no way they could endure what they would go through at this point. And it makes sense that when they got to heaven, it would have just been a natural reaction to praise God. You know, making worship a regular part of your daily life helps you to joyfully serve God as you trust his perfect plan. It's a perfectly ordered plan. You know, no matter what that plan looks like, and it matters not at the chaos going around you, your eyes are focused on him. So here we are, we're standing at the edge of this cliff, about to go off the edge of this of God's final judgment. It's about to be poured out on all the unsuspected people who have rejected him over and over. I want you to drop your eyes down to the first verse of chapter 16 and follow along. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This is literally the beginning of the end. Or at least the end of the earth as we know it. Do any of you ever watch home improvement shows? You know, I dabbled in them for years, uh, would turn them on occasionally if there was nothing else on. But over the last year, I had a, a, an injury and a couple surgeries. So by the time I ran out of things to read, I turned on the TV and I started watching home improvement shows. And they're on 24-7. And I'm not, when I say I watched them, I watched them a lot. And, and I realized that at one point I had to stop because I had a legal pad filled with things I wanted to do to my house and had started to dry out the plans. And then I realized one morning, I don't have money to do that. So I had to put my legal pad aside and change the channel. And, and I realized though, when I was watching them, they all kind of had the same thing happening. Especially the one where, they take the, where they're going to build a brand new house. They all kind of follow the same order. You know, there's one called uh Extreme Home Makeover. Hack absolutely is one of my favorites. And I, I guess it's because of the backstories that come with it. More than anything, I still watch that show. But if you've ever watched any of those episodes, they all kind of follow the same order. It's very orderly. First, they go in and they remove all their valuables. And then they tuck them away in a safe place and keep them sealed up until their new house is built. Secondly, they go in and they identify those things that could be used or repurposed, maybe on another project like a bathtub or cabinets or windows or doors or whatever that is. They can be taken out carefully and then they can be reused on another project. And then lastly, They use one of those big excavators. You know, it's got the big arm and the claw end on it. And they come in and literally within just like five or six sweeps, the house just comes down to the ground and they move the excavator and they take jackhammers to the slab and they take it down to the dirt. And what's left is this absolutely beautiful piece of blank earth that's ready for rebuilding. I think that's what's happening here. It's God's extreme home makeover. See, our God is a God of great order. First, he removed and or he sealed his saints for safekeeping. He's pulled them out and kept them safe. Secondly, he's allowed time for some to turn to him. You know, he's repurposed them and they've been allowed to step into his great plan and serve him. And now we're at that part of the extreme makeover where he's brought in his excavator. I think it's named the Bowls of Wrath and he's about to drop this place down to the slab. Follow along, we're gonna read exactly how he does this. I'm gonna pick up in verse two and read all the way to verse 11. So the angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and a harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and was and for who is and was for you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty true and just are your judgments. The fourth bowl is poured out and on the sun and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They are scorched by the fierce heat and they curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory." The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed on their, their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Ladies, it is demo day in God's extreme home makeover. And these judgments are poured out in greater, more severe, and more intense than anything that they has occurred in any of the preceding judgments. Now, although these judgments sound a little familiar to some of those we may have read about in the trumpet judgments, there is one striking difference. The, the trumpet judgments affected a third of the earth. These bowls of wrath are complete. They're going to wipe it all out. Now, remember earlier, I said not to confuse judgment postponed for judgment revoked. See, where the trumpet judgments temp, in the trumpet judgments, God had tempered his uh, judgment to only one third. And that was giving an opportunity for more to turn to him. But in the bowls of wrath, the full strength of his imminent justice and judgment is being revealed. And that first bowl is poured out and a horrible plague of painful sores. It affects all of those who have accepted or rejected Christ and they've taken the mark of the beast. Anyone who hadn't taken the mark of the beast are not affected. You know, a Bible teacher named John Phillips, he said this, and I thought it was interesting. I don't know if there's any truth in this at all. But um, he said, wouldn't it be interesting if those sores are actually over where the mark is? It's like it was a painful reminder of that they took that mark. I don't know if that's it at all, but I thought it was an interesting thought. You know, the second bowl is poured out and all the bodies of salt water are turned into what John describes as the blood of a corpse. Now, the blood of a corpse would be quite different than fresh blood. You know, it's going to be thick. It's going to be dark. It's going to be stinky. I can't even imagine the horrendous stench of not only the rotting blood it's going to cause, but also the stench that would come along with all the dying sea life that's brought on by this plague. You know, the other thing is that those that had received the mark of the beast, the, the ocean obviously be a very important source of food for them. And that has been being destroyed. It'd be a crushing blow for them. The third bowl is then poured out and it's probably just about that time when all those ha- inhabitants have realized, hey, we can't use the sea anymore. Let's go to the rivers and the streams. The bowl is poured out and all the fresh water is turned to blood as well. Think about this for a second. With this plague, most all of their sources of water has become contaminated. And they have nothing left to drink. They have very little or no water left to drink. It's a miserable time. And then after this third bowl, John takes a break in his recording of the bowls of wrath, and he records this brief doxology from the angel who is in charge of the water. Is that interesting to you at all? I thought. The angel in charge of the water. There's an angel in charge of the water. I mean, that just reaffirms what I was telling you. We have a heavenly father who is so perfectly ordered, he's got everything under his control. But John hears this angel affirm that God is demonstrating his perfect justice through these judgments. And then John says that the altar confirms the statement. Now, this would most likely be the testimony of the martyred saints that we read about earlier in Revelations. I, uh, Revelation. I put one of those up for you on your verse sheet. It's uh, Revelation 6, 9. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, with the second and third bowl judgments, it appears that all the water, or most of the water, has been turned to blood which I think also gives us further evidence that these final judgments are likely poured out very rapidly and right before the second coming, the return of Christ. Because I would think it would be impossible for the earth to sustain life very long under these conditions. Now, the fourth bowl is poured out and what happens? The sun's heat becomes so intense, it begins to scorch people's skin. Now, there are some mixed reviews about whether this affects the, uh, the, the believers left on earth. Some believe that it doesn't, and they, they state that they, it would be kind of like in the plagues of Egypt, where the Israelites weren't always affected. I don't know. I can tell you this. If they weren't directed effectively, I bet they were, direct, were indirectly affected by this. The most startling detail to me in all of this, though, is found in verse 9 where it says they were scorched by the heat and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. It's shocking to me that they not only knew that he was was God and he was the one that controlled these plagues. And yet they would not humble themselves and cry out to him for help. Instead, they would only call out to curse his name for sending the plagues. This, I think, is a perfect picture of a hardened heart. You know, the same God that they chose to, to curse says this in Joel 2. I put this on your verse sheet. He says, even now... Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. These rebellious people have many chances to turn to God, and yet they don't. But if they would have, he would have been so gracious to forgive them and welcome them into his kingdom. Instead of humble repentance, though, John records they get nothing but hardened hearts. Increased hardened hearts. Chuck Swindoll says this about uh, these rebellious people. He says, think about this. Everyone afflicted by these plagues will have had access to these exact same predictions we're reading today. They would have access to this. Not only that, they would have had seven years of successive warnings as all the other judgments had been poured out. And they have no excuse for their continued rebellion. Yet they still curse their Creator and they rage at their Redeemer. It is such a sad, sad, but very inevitable scene. Now the fifth bowl is poured out over the kingdom ruled by the Antichrist and they are plunged into this total darkness. Now, it appears that these five judgments maybe are cumulative because the sores are again mentioned in verse 11. But just imagine this, the world at this time. Think about this for a minute. The sores that had they had been afflicted with back in the first bowl of wrath, I'm sure they're festered and infected by now. The water that would have been used to clean those sores and to quench their thirst, it's all been turned into stagnant, stinky blood. The skin, The skin that on their bodies have been burned by the sun's rays. And now they've been plunged, plunged into this complete darkness, so dark it can be felt. And yet they curse God and refuse to repent. You know, by the way, this is the final reference to their unwillingness to repent, which leads me to believe that the first five plagues listed here were God's final offer to all of humanity to repent. These unrepentant people become like those that are, are, were alive during the, the great flood, right before the great flood, when Noah's, during Noah's time. Look at Genesis 6, 5. God describes those people and it sounds very familiar. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the heart, thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. See, by this time in the tribulation, humans are gonna be in a total state of depravity. I want to follow along. I want you you to follow along as I read the next five verses. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for their demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day. Of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they resemble, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, the sixth bowl is poured out, and it says the great Euphrates River is dried up, and this is to prepare a way for the kings from the east to move to the west. And the river that's mentioned here, the great Euphrates River, was actually been around since the Garden of Eden. It was one of the four rivers that provided water to the Garden of Eden before the fall. And these kings most likely are going to be thinking, hey, it's our lucky day. The river's dried up. We can go across it. But we all know from reading this, it's very clear that this is brought on by demonic depression, uh, deception. We see Satan. He knows that the end is very near. He knows that... He, by doing this, he's going to lure these military powers there because he wants them to be there when Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives. He wants them to fight in the battle with him. So these nations will go willingly and they enter this war willingly most likely because they're thinking we're going to get political power. They're coming thinking I'm going to get power by doing this. But Satan's purpose is to fight that final challenge and he wants them to be a part of it. This battle will occur in a place called Armageddon, and its Hebrew name is Megiddo. Now, many believe that Megiddo is a place where the Battle of Armageddon is going to occur. And they say this because there have been a very many strategic battles fought in this area. And it's still one of the most strategic cities that remains in that region, which is today called Palestine. And most believe that the drying up of the river Euphrates and this battle recorded here is connected with that sixth trumpet that we talked about last time I was here with you back in chapter nine. They say most likely that the seven bowls follow very quickly after the seven trumpets and that the invasion recorded in chapter nine with the 6th trumpet. Remember, we talked about the 200 million that would be brought there to fight would be the early stage of this and what's recorded here in chapter 16 with the sixth bowl is the ultimate purpose, the ultimate part of this battle. Now, most also believe that the time sequence between the last trumpet judgments and the bowls of wrath could very well just be days or weeks rather than months or years. I'm not sure if you've heard this quote or not, but it's by Rudyard Kipling. He says, east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. But that's not the entire quote. That's usually what we only hear. This is the entire quote. East is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet till earth and sky stand presently at God's great judgment seat. See, even Mr. Kipling knew that there comes a time when the east and the west would actually come together. And we know from what we've studied, it's going to happen in a place called Armageddon. And the battle fought there will be the battle of all battles. In a sense, this battle is going to usher in the seventh bowl and it's going to, bring, which is going to bring down the curtain and signal the end of the earth. Now follow along. I want to read the uh, last few verses of chapter 16. And I'm going to pick up in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne saying, it is done. And there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake, such as there have never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of his fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountain were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe." Now, if you will remember back in um, the seals that we studied, there, between the sixth and seventh seal, there was a, a little interlude, a little break. And then there was another break as well between the sixth and seventh judgment. There seems to be very little and no break here between the sixth and seventh bowl. It seems like they are being poured out relentlessly. And the seventh bowl is poured out and thunder and earthquake and large hailstones mark the very end of God's wrath. We've reached that point in Demo Day during the Great Tribulation where God pulls out his excavators and they have their names, their lightning, thunder, and earthquake. And he finishes dropping all of creation down to the slab. And then he pulls them out and he brings out his His jackhammers, their 100 pound hailstones. And he proceeds to take that concrete slab down to the Stone Age foundation, dirt. And he does it and it's a perfect place for him to rebuild his beautiful millennial kingdom. You know, there's great debate as to whether the great city mentioned here in verse 19 is Jerusalem. Uh, much, many believe that it's actually Babylon that's referred to later and actually in the second half. But we do know that every city of the world that says this and every nation will be destroyed. And the entire topography of the earth is going to be changed. It's going to be nothing like it is today. You know, I'm guessing by now, some of you may have become one of those people just like me after reading this. You know, you're going to want to start skipping ahead to read the last chapter to help calm your nerves. You need that happily ever after fix. If not, I'm guessing you had nails for breakfast because this is some really hard stuff to read. I don't have nerves of steel, and some of you don't as well, I'm sure. And I want you to sit there for just a minute. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to listen to these words from chapter 19. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges. Ladies, if that doesn't settle your nerves, I don't know what's going to settle your nerves. You know, reading through these three series of God's wrath recorded by John in the book of Revelation reminds us that we not only serve a God of justice and a God of mercy and grace, we also serve a God of perfect, perfect order. You know, from the very day he tossed Adam and Eve out of the garden, he's been giving mankind opportunity after opportunity to turn to him and repent. And time and time again, they've rejected him. But that's not all. He's given all of his followers, you and I, opportunity after opportunity to share Christ with the fearful and lost world. How are you using all of those opportunities? You know, the chaos and suffering the world is living through or has lived throughout through history, it's but a drop in the bucket when compared to the judgments that are coming in the great tribulation. Look at Matthew 24, 21 on your verse sheet. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's telling them about the end times, the tribulation. He says, for then there will be great tribulations such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. See, I challenge you today to stop living with the spirit of fear and start living out what you've been called to do. Look at Matthew 5:16 on your verse sheet. It says, "In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." That's what we're called to do. And look at John 14:27. It says, "Peace I leave with you; my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid." That's how we're called to live. See, times of chaos and suffering are those very opportunities that God gives us to point others to their Heavenly Father. And better to do it now before they endure the Great Tribulation, which they got to know that that's going to be worse than anything they see today. What we see today is a walk in the park compared to that. Please don't let your reactions cause others to respond in fear. Instead, I want to challenge each of you to live a life that points others to their Heavenly Father, the only one who gives perfect peace. Please pray with me. Father, these are hard chapters to read. They're hard chapters to study. Lord, I pray that you would bless each one of us as we dove into these and found your truth, Father. I pray that you would help us to be people who do not live in fear, that we're people that... um, live in a way that shows that we trust you. I pray that our light would shine on others. It would be your light shining through us. Father, I pray that our words would be your words that we're speaking. We would have your thoughts and your actions and we would be your hands and feet in every area of our lives, Father. Father, we love your word and we love your son. and In his great name we pray, amen.